My name's Greg Poole. For those who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. And again, welcome to Oak Mountain as we gather uh, for worship. This morning, we're continuing in our summer series on the means of grace. And today, we'll be looking at the priority of corporate worship as a means of grace. We're going to be looking at the priority of corporate worship. So let me ask you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 42. And if you have a physical Bible, put your finger there and then turn over to Psalm 63. Uh, we'll be looking at both of those passages as, uh, as an, a springboard into a broad survey of what Scripture has to say about corporate worship. Over the past number of years, about every couple of years, sometimes more often, I have the opportunity to go to a really good, high-end steakhouse. You know, one of these places like Ruth's Chris or something that costs way too much money. But man, the steak is really good. I mean, I don't know what they do, but they obviously have access to beef that we don't have access to. And they know how to cook it and prepare it, and it is absolutely mind-boggling. It is incredible. There's, there's just nothing better than one of those great steaks. And typically, I, I, I'm usually there with a group of guys, and we're all sitting there looking at the menu, and we're wrestling with what are we, we going to get. Are we going to get the filet just because it's like butter and melts in your mouth, or are you going to go with the ribeye, and if you go with the ribeye, you're going to go bone in or not. We're just all this wrestling, and then what size you want to get, and then you decide what you want as far as the steak. Then you go, you know what, they've got some really good toppings that might go on top of the steak that could enhance it, maybe some blue cheese butter, truffle butter, some mushrooms, something. Do, do I want, want to add that? And then they have these fabulous sides, asparagus, lobster, mac and cheese, garlic, potato. Oh, you're getting hungry. But, um, but it's absolutely amazing. And so we sit there and we wrestle with what we're going to do. Are we going to get some sides? And, you know, the side just shares a group. And the last time I went, we were all together, and we wrestled, and then every single one of us said, you know what, I am just getting the steak just the way it is. No toppings, no side. I just want to enjoy this steak. In all of the times I've been, never, not one time, I can't imagine it happening, has someone said, I'm going to pass on the steak. Just bring out some of those sides. Bring me the asparagus. Bring me the Brussels sprouts. I'm good. Right? God graciously invites us to an amazing feast. And corporate worship is the main entree. All of the other means of grace simply supplement and enhance the meal. But without the entree, the meal is incomplete. When we choose not to engage in corporate worship while making use of the other means of grace, it's the same thing as passing up the stake for the sides. Corporate worship is the foundation for all of the other means of grace. It is the fountain from which flows the life and the power into the other means of grace. It is the soil in which the other means of grace flourish and grow. We must engage in corporate worship. Now that's a bold statement. It goes counter to what a lot of us have been taught. 
So why do I say that? Let's look at Scripture together and we will see. Stand as we read Psalm 42. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 and then we'll turn over to Psalm 63, 1 through 2. This is God's Word. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, Where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And then Psalm 63. O God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for your word that tells us of the power of worship. That it does something for us that is unique and different. God, give us ears to hear. And God, give us a hunger and a thirst for you that can be quenched only by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So I chose these two passages of Scripture to kind of launch us into this overview of what Scripture says about corporate worship Um, because these two Scriptures were pretty impactful and informative in my early days as a believer. I, I became serious uh, in my Christian faith. Maybe I became a believer in August of, of 1981, so 41 years ago. And pretty soon after uh, doing that, being discipled, being poured into, these two verses were brought to my attention. These were a couple of verses you, you need to memorize, but the whole focus of Both of these passages was just the first portion. And so we would memorize and pray as a deer pants for flowing streams. So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Just those first two verses. God, make me thirst for you like that. Make me hungry for you like that. But for some reason, we never went on to verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude of keeping festival. We failed to make the connection that where was the hunger and the thirst stirred up in? It was stirred up in corporate worship. He said, I remember this. That's why I long and I thirst. I had the steak and now I want more. And then, same thing in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. And so we would memorize that scripture and we'd cry out, God, this is what I want to be. This is the kind of man I want to be. I want to be a person who, who hungers after you, who 
whose flesh faints for you. Make me that kind of person. And then we failed to make the connection to verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. That corporate worship was the energy behind it. It was the source of it. Western society is incredibly individualistic. And we in the church have been shaped more by Western culture than by Scripture. So that we have become very individualistic even in our pursuit of God. And it's just evident in the way my Christian faith was shaped early on. Is that these verses were all about me and Jesus. And it's supposed to be more than that. One of the things I did this week as I was getting ready, I thought, was this just my experience or is it broader? So I went to my bookshelf and I pulled off a a stack of books on spiritual growth and the spiritual disciplines. And I thought, let me just look back and make sure I'm not wrong on this. And so I went through all of these books and Almost all of them either didn't mention corporate worship or it was just a small component of what was necessary among the means of grace to connect with the Lord and grow in faith. Um, Almost invariably, they started off with the importance of a personal intake of Scripture. If you need to be having a daily quiet time, you need to be reading and studying and memorizing Scripture. Failing to connect that with, you need to be hearing the word preached. There was, then moved into the second chapter, would typically be on prayer, your personal prayer life. But almost no mention of corporate worship. One of the books, there actually was a chapter on praise and worship. And within that chapter, it talked about the importance that we need to be praising and worshiping God. But the element of corporate worship was just kind of mixed in there with what you do personally as if it's an equivalency. Overall, our emphasis has become more me and Jesus. And yet the overall thrust of Scripture is that it's less about me and Jesus and more about Jesus and us. It's less about me and Jesus and more about Jesus and us. Corporate worship is the center of the means of grace. Now let me just pause right there. I recognize that there are times in life we can't engage in corporate worship. There's sickness. Sometimes there's physical infirmity due to age or whatever. There are legitimate reasons But Scripture is saying, as much as you are able, you need to engage in corporate worship. But we recognize, yes, there are those times. That's what we started streaming worship well before COVID ever, ever came. Because we wanted to serve those people who are unable to be here because of physical difficulties or travel or whatever. But the thrust of Scripture is we 
must engage in corporate worship. And so what I want to look at this morning is that because of the foundational importance and the profound impact of corporate worship, we must personally prioritize corporate worship. We must personally prioritize our engagement in corporate worship because of the foundational importance and the profound impact of corporate worship. I'm going to start with thinking about the foundational importance of corporate worship. It is foundational. And it starts with just what was the place of corporate worship throughout the history of the church? For most of the history of the church, the almost the only means of grace readily available to most people was corporate worship. I mean, think about up until around the 1500s, most people did not have any access to Scripture except coming to corporate worship. In the Old Testament, you would... There, you would ha- come to the synagogue, you would come to the temple or, or then to the synagogue, and they would have it on a scroll. Even in the time of Jesus, that was the only way you heard Scripture. No one, even throughout the first uh, 1,500 years, maybe the wealthiest people could afford a written piece of scripture. It wasn't until the printing press in the 1500s that the scriptures became readily available. So, how did you? Engage in the means of grace, of meditating and memorizing Scripture. You came to corporate worship. You heard it read. You quote, you, you recited it together. And then you would go home throughout the week and you would meditate and remember what you heard the previous week in corporate worship. You would talk about it as a family. You would think about the prayers that were uttered and you would use those to shape your prayers. You would think back to the psalms that you sang in corporate worship and you would sing them together as a family or individually because guess what? You didn't have one of these where you carried around every song in the world, right? That's all they had. But now we can step back and go, well, God is so good. Because of technological advances, the development of the printing press, paper, etc. We have access to all of these things. He has made the other means of grace so much more readily accessible to us. And so much richer than most people through history have ever experienced. But even though it's more readily accessible and richer, we cannot allow it to supplant and push aside corporate worship. It's the same thing as saying, push away the steak and give me the asparagus. It doesn't matter how good the asparagus is good, it is not as good as the steak. So it is a foundational, it is by just sheer necessity, it was the foundational means of grace for the church for most of the life of the church. Second thing I want to look at is just the overwhelming number of commands that the Bible com- contains for corporate worship. So I went over the past few weeks as I was getting ready for this, I began to think, how many commands are there? I knew there were a lot because I've read through the Psalms a lot of times. And so I just started Psalm by Psalm going through, let me tabulate all of the commands for corporate worship. Not individual worship, but corporate worship. 
Um, and then I got through that. And I thought, well, let me expand it out to the Old Testament. I used a search engine for the Old Testament. I didn't do it perfect. But, and then I looked at the New Testament. But just for comparison's sake, just to give you something to help you compare, to, to measure it against, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you know that what's the most common command in the Bible? Fear not. Don't be afraid. 33 times the command, fear not, is in the Bible. Then about another 30 times there's the command, don't be afraid. Why does God do that? He knows who we are. He knows we live in a broken, terrifying world. And he wants us to know you're safe. He wants us to know you're secure. I've got you. I have your back. I'm holding you. You don't have to be afraid of this fallen world. He's telling us that 65 times because it's important that we know that. So that's just giving you something to compare the commands of worship. That's the number one command is fear not, be not afraid. So I went through, and this is what I tabulated. And almost all of these are in the Psalms, by the way. None, none of the commands are in the New Testament for corporate worship. Most of them are in the Psalms, a few scattered throughout other parts. Praise the Lord, 27 times. It's two other times one is an individual, one is, hmm, is kind of how you read the psalm. Is it individual or corporate? But I'll say 27. I'll, I, won't, I won't go to 28. Exalt the Lord twice. Worship the Lord three times. Ascribe to the Lord six times. Sing to the Lord seven times. Rejoice in the Lord once. Give thanks to the Lord 11 times. 57 commands, all of them corporate in nature. 57 times. So why is God doing that? Because it's important. He knows this is vitally important that you worship corporately. Now, what about the New Testament? There's actually not a lot of commands or instruction in the New Testament on worship. It's kind of amazing. Until you step back and think, the New Testament church simply emerged out of the Old Testament church. And they already had a complete directory of worship. They had the Psalms. It told them almost everything they needed to know about worship. So the New Testament writers didn't have to add a lot to that. Just a, a few exceptions. 1 Corinthians 14. Remember, the Corinthian church was an absolute train wreck. And so 1 Corinthians 14 is this long chapter with all kinds of stuff about worship, but basically you could boil it down to say and make sure it's orderly and comprehensible. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, he is giving directions on communion because at that time there was a move from celebrating Passover as a family in the home to celebrating communion as the people of God in corporate worship. So there needed to be direction. Then a few other instances in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, Paul says, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He said there's an importance of singing in the Christian life. And in fact, if you're a Christian, you must be a singer. I'm sorry, that's what it says. And then Hebrews 10 is the clearest expression of corporate worship. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you say, see the day drawing near. He's saying 
don't neglect meeting together. Now, I've had people push back on that before. Well, I, I do that in my small group. I do that in my Wednesday morning Bible study. We meet together, we assemble together every week. I'm sorry, that's not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. If you just read those two verses, yeah, maybe you could read it that way. But if you read it in context, you go back to the opening words of chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews is describing corporate worship in Old Testament times. They would come together and a significant portion of their time would be the slaughtering of animals so that there was the shed of blood to pay for their sins so they could approach God. And then he says, but Jesus has done that for us so that no longer do we have to slaughter animals. And then he, in Hebrews 10, 19, says these words, Therefore, brothers, since we plural, have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, plural, through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we, plural, have a great priest over the house of God, let us, plural, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our, plural, heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our, plural, bodies washed with pure water. We get to come together. Now again, my early days of my walk with the Lord, I was told this is, this is what applies to you personally, and it certainly does. We are free in our personal lives, in our daily lives, to approach God with absolute abandon, without fear of condemnation, because Jesus has paid the price of our sins. But this is specifically telling us, we, right now, all of us together, we get to freely come before the Lord and lift our voices into singing and enjoy Him together. We're told these things over and over and over. The commands are clear. We're to engage in corporate worship. Now, if you were to go and add all of the commands for the other means of grace together, they would not come close. Wouldn't come close. I didn't go through and add them up, but I don't think they'd even get to the halfway point. So what do you think God is saying the most important means of grace is? It's clearly, it's corporate worship. The number of commands is overwhelming. God wants us to worship him together. But listen, God, he's not like us as a parent. How many of us has done, as parents have done this, or some of you have kids have heard this? Hey, I need you to go do such and such. Why? Because I'm your father. Now, Dad, come it, go do it. Right? I'm your authority. Go do it. Don't worry about the reason. God never does that. Every single one of those 57 commands to worship has a reason attached to it. Even the shortest psalm, Psalm 117, two simple verses, three commands to worship, contains glorious reason to engage in corporate worship. Listen to Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations, command number one. Extol him, all peoples, command number two. Why? For great is his steadfast love towards us. 
and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord, command number three. Do you see that? I mean, what a good God he is. And he doesn't just say, worship me. But he says, worship me because I want you to enjoy me and see me for who I am. And that rolls now over into the profound impact of corporate worship. So we must worship him because it's foundational. But we also worship because of the profound impact. I want to look at Psalm 27. And in Psalm 27, um, we don't really know what's happening in David's life. But if you read the psalm, you realize he's afraid. His life's in danger. He's being attacked in some way. Now, I don't know about you, but I know about me. And if I'm in a situation where I'm being attacked and my life's in danger and I cry out to God, you know what I'm crying out? I'm saying, God, get me out of here. Or I'm saying, God, please wipe them out. Listen to what David cries out. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To what? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I mean, here he is, his life's in danger. He says, God, the only thing I want is I want to be with with you in corporate worship, gazing upon your beauty. If I can have that, wow. You see, that's what we do in corporate worship. Is we lift up the beauty of Jesus. Now let me ask you, what happens inside of you when you see beauty? You look out your window and you see a sunset. You stand on the precipice of the Grand Canyon. You gaze upon Niagara Falls. What happens inside? Man, there's awe. There's astonishment. There's wonder. There's joy. There's gladness. Something deep inside of us is touched and we're satisfied in a way that is incredible. And why is it? Because God made us for beauty. He made us as human beings to love and want and desire beauty. And worship directs us to see the beauty of God, the beauty of God revealed in his character, and the beauty of God revealed in his acts as he seeks to redeem us, his people. And all of these psalms show us that. You think about Psalm 117, what what did it do? It's, it directed our attention to God's unfailing love, to his faithfulness, the very thing Juan mentioned in his call to worship. And we go, that is amazingly beautiful that his love is steadfast because every other love I experience in this life is sometimes iffy, right? His faithfulness endures forever. I don't experience that anywhere else because all the people in my world can sometimes fail me. But man, God is so beautiful. Or another example, Psalm 149, 
Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord, two commands. And then the psalmist turns around and says, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. And I go, how could that be? Because I look inside and I know who I am. And I go, you know, I'm not very lovable. I'm not very likable sometimes. But the God of the universe takes pleasure in me. I mean, people, is that beautiful? Absolutely. You see, and that's what we do in worship is we design worship to help you see the beauty of the Lord. Think about, I mean, I could just walk through any of the songs we did this morning. But put up just real quick a few of the words from who you say I am. Just think about these words. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? That's what I just read from Psalm 149. I mean, isn't that astonishing? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Going to the next one. If we've got it. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. I mean, just through our songs, we describe the beauty of God. I mean, even when you're here on the first Sunday of the month and, and we take in new members, I think sometimes even to think the reception of new members, just oh, that's just a mundane thing we've got put into worship. But when you listen to those membership questions, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure without hope, saving His sovereign mercy? Yes, I do. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God? And the Savior of sinners. And do you receive and rest and rely upon Him alone as He's offering the gospel? Yes, I do. Isn't that beautiful? Every part of our worship is designed to direct our attention to the beauty and the glory of God. So that something deep inside of us is touched and stirred. And then as we see the beauty of the Lord, it gives us perspective in the midst of life's challenges. I mean... Life is hard. You know, and sometimes you come into this place and it's overwhelming and it's as if darkness has descended. But as we direct your attention to the beauty of God, it's as if a crack in the darkness forms and a sliver of light comes in and your perspective has changed. And that's what happened to David in Psalm 27. He cried out saying, I just need to be in the house of the Lord. And and a couple of verses later, he says, Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I'll offer in his tent in public worship sacrifices with shouts of joy. I'll sing and make melody to the Lord. He said, even though my life is threatened, if I'm in the house of the Lord, I get perspective of who God is that I'm saved. Then I can sing for joy. You can get joy. Even though it's still darkness, the enemy was still there. But he got a new perspective. In verse 10, he said, For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me. And he said, Everybody that loves me has left, is forgotten me. But God, you've not. I'm not alone. I'm not abandoned. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of living. He said, I thought I was going to die, but God, now I have hope. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. 
He's strengthened. He's given courage to move into life. That's what happens when we gather in corporate worship and we see the beauty of the Lord. We gain new perspectives so that we can walk back into life, even if it's just for another week. But now you raise the objection. But I can do that in my personal study of the Bible, right? Absolutely, and you should. Then why is corporate worship so important to do that? I want you to think about something. When you're driving down the road with your family and you see a rainbow, do you keep it to yourself? No, you say, hey, everybody, look, there's a rainbow. Why? Because you want them to see the beauty and enjoy the beauty of it. I'll go out walking our dog sometimes at night, and if there's a full moon I'll, and it's beautiful, I'll walk back into Elisa. I'll say, come outside and see the full moon. It's gorgeous. We see sunsets. And we say, come look at the sunset. We walk around, we see something beautiful, and we're snapping pictures, posting it on social media, because there's something about sharing beauty that is more deeply satisfying than experiencing it alone. I'm paraphrasing C.S. Lewis, but he said, Our joy is incomplete until we share it with others. God has designed worship to meet our deep longing for joy. I mean, our deep longing for beauty, which produces joy. But he's also designed it because he knows we are relational beings. And there is something about worshiping together as we hear one another's voices, as we see one another's faces, as we recognize I'm not alone in what I believe, I'm not alone in what I struggle with. It strengthens, it deepens, it makes it more rich and personal and believable. That can't happen alone. We seek God together, and in doing so, we see Him, and then we savor and celebrate the beauty of God together. Over and over in the Psalms, we see the psalmist experiencing something of beauty, and then he immediately says, I've got to tell people. Again, Psalm 26, after he talks about wanting to be in the house of the Lord, seeing the beauty of the Lord, he says, I will offer in his tent. Old Testament, in David's day, there was no physical temple. It was just the tabernacle, the huge tent where they would gather for corporate He says, I want to go right there, and I want to sing for joy. I can't wait to share this together, because it will be multiply my joy, and it will give them joy. And again, back to Hebrews 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Our worshiping together stirs up something in one another that can't happen when we're alone. It encourages us. But the final phrase, but encouraging one another. There is something about worshiping together that encourages each other. It's why Paul twice said, Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs because we need to hear it from one another. We need corporate worship. We need to be here. I normally sit right over there where my wife is. 
And I almost never look at the stage while we're singing. Because there's something as I let my eyes scan all of you. And sometimes Elise will say, what are you looking at? Because sometimes I'll even look back over my shoulder to see. But there's just something that stirs inside of me as I see your faces, as I see your responses, as I hear your voices, that deepens my faith and ability to believe the words we're singing. That could never happen at home. And I want you to think about another thing. The value of who you are. The writer of Hebrews says, but let us encourage one another. Have you thought about the fact that you have the power to encourage the other people in this room? That by your participation in worship, you have the power to stir up love and good deeds. That's because you are an image bearer and you bear God's image in a way that's unique and different than all the other billions of people who have ever lived or will live. And when you bring that to worship, we get a reflection of God that we would not experience otherwise. But also implicit in that command to let us encourage one another is the fact that we need to be encouraged. There's a need within each of us. And if we're not here in public worship, we're missing out on that. There's a profound impact of corporate worship where we see the beauty of God. Our perspectives are changed. We hear it from one another and echoes back and forth and we are strengthened and given courage and hope. And then there's a final impact of corporate worship. This one's going to mess your minds up. I'm sorry. Matthew 18, 20. I'm just telling you right now, most of you, you've misapplied this verse. Don't hate me. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Does not apply when it's just you and a couple of buddies getting together to pray. Does not apply to your life group. Does not apply to your small group. Is Jesus present when we gather together in small groups? Absolutely, because God is what? He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. The Holy Spirit abides in you. But in this chapter, Jesus is talking about the church gathered together formally as the church to carry out its business. In this particular situation, it's church discipline. He is saying, when the church gathers as the church, I am with you. And in a very particular way that does not apply in any other facet of life. Jesus is present right now by the power of the Holy Spirit in this place in a more powerful and profound way than he is in any other place. And we don't experience it alone. Corporate worship has profound impact. It is of foundational importance. We need to be together to worship the Lord. You need it. I need it. We need it. 
come feed upon the beauty of Jesus, that your heart and our hearts would be changed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of corporate worship. God, you know our frame. God, you know the way you made us, that our hearts long for beauty. And God, we're relational. We need each other. So God, let us push back on the individualism of our society and say we need each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and receive the benediction. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be upon you all, both now and forevermore. Go in peace. 